and then people are charmed or frightened, but also very confused as to why this badger is so terrifying or alluring. I mean, it's obvious why he's so terrifying. And alluring. Perhaps not alluring. <laughs> it's obvious why he's so terrifying. He's a badger. Look at my fine stripes. <laughs> These sharp claws. Live from the Mundangerous Killbox in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 291 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're starting a new series on combat tactics as we discuss focusing fire. But first, the party uncovers a scheme in the Gates of Morning campaign. And later, fire in the hole goes to ground in the Character Creation Forge. All right, before we get started, just a reminder, we are still doing bonus content. Right after this episode, we will be recording that. It is our plot hook of the week. Uh, The first two episodes are on Patreon, and uh, you can check it out there at any level. uh, You will receive that content. Let us know what you think, uh, if you want more of them, or you want us to try something different. We are open to suggestions. All right, Ethan, where are we in the Gates of Morning campaign? So the Gates of Morning campaign is our 5th edition D&D game set in Eberron, a sequel of sorts to the original Morning Glory campaign. And in Flamekeep, the seat of the Church of the Silver Flame, the party is hunting down a rogue sect of House Jurasco. So Switch the Paladin has decided to trust to Chance, or more specifically, the Traveler, the god of change and creation that she secretly worships. After closing her eyes, her hand alights on the spine of a book. But when she opens her eyes, the book is being held by a smiling old man in flamic livery who greets her as my child. His manner is much lighter than a typical follower of the Silver Flame, and he seems almost delighted by Switch's devotion to the principle of change, which, of course, she is more than happy to explain at length. None of her philosophical musings appear to surprise him, uh, though she is in human form. He warns her that in the future she may meet some of her siblings, who are less devoted to change. He asks that she try to help him. Ah, when Switch tries to help people, sometimes they get hurt. Mm Mm-hmm. Just then, she turns when she hears Warden walk into the room looking for her. But when she turns back, the man is gone. Warden, though, saw no one but Switch, and Egan insists that this section of the stacks actually has no librarian. The party regroups, and it seems that Jayla Darren has told Egan a lot about their task. He begins to pry information out of the party, explaining that he was an inquisitive, a uh, detective, before he was called to the church. And when the party explains they've been carrying around the corpse of Elaine, the mine seed, after killing him in Korth, he reluctantly commends them for being practical. After all, this way, they can question the corpse using Speak with Dead once every ten days, which surely they've been doing. Right? 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 (laughs) I'm pretty sure at this point you'd have the corpse for like, I don't know, two weeks. But we hadn't had the spell for that long. Yeah, that's true. Nor had you gone looking for someone who could cast it. That's that's very true. He does, however, offer to cast the spell right now. So after a quick conference. A long conference. It was like half a session. (laughs) A quick conference. The party agrees on five questions. First, they ask, what bodies are mine seeds, and who are they now? 
Uh, that's kind of two questions, but you know, whatever. So the corpse's mouth opens and a breathy, disembodied voice issues forth. I do not know who they may be now, but we were Paul, Elaine, Gersi, Johera, Meryl, Voreg, Nalith, and Torn. The last three names are new, uh, though, you know, party just assumes they're likely the cell swords that escaped with the refugees on the day of morn. Yeah, two of them anyway. Um, <laughs> Lenore then breathes a heavy sigh. Uh, she says Torn was the woman who was traveling with her on that day, the one that she called Mother, which a lot of you had picked up was probably a code word of some kind because she was actually an important prisoner of House Thrashk, and Lenore was tasked with transporting her to the prison at Dreadhold uh, when they were all killed. And of course she assumed Torn was killed and her duty fulfilled. Uh, next question. Why were you trying to break into the Tower of the Twelve? And the voice comes again. To build a Hanbalan. Vesakad, the Kalishdar, uh, is freaked out a bit by this because he knows that the Hanbalani Altas are the giant monoliths that dot the nation of Riedra and help the quarry control the minds of the populace. The Dreaming Dark, it appears, wants to do the same thing to the dragon-marked houses. Bramble then asks, why were we cut apart? This time a different voice comes out of the body. A louder, frantic one emanates from the mouth. We, we were raised from the dead and, and cut apart, killed and, and raised again over and over. They wanted to see how we had been changed, what, what our limits were. And the voice describes an ordeal similar to the dreams that some of the party has been having about what they went through. The voice then changes to the breathy one one more time. The bodies were infused with energies from two planes, Maybar and Dulur. It was the answer to our gravest problem. And the party all groans because even the corpse makes dad jokes. He was, this is Elaine. He was literally dead. <laughs> the next question, what is your biggest problem? How to bend the gates of the Dakir to stop the turning of the age. Well, putting all of their heads together, the party figures out that the gates of the Dalkir probably means the dimensional seals placed by the gatekeeper druids thousands of years ago that keep the realm of madness, Zoriat, locked in place in its orbit around Eberron and preventing foul creatures from crossing the planar boundary. Uh, good thing he had a druid and a greensinger bard in the party who knew a little bit about this stuff. Vesicod guesses that the quarry want to repurpose the seals to lock Dalcor, the plane of dreams, in place of Zoriat, the realm of madness, uh, perhaps preventing it from completing its natural revolution and cementing the control of Elashtavar, the dreaming dark, forever. In effect, this would not only defeat the Kalashtar and let the quarry turn all of their attention to conquering Aberon, it would also unleash aberrations from Zoriat onto Corvair just like uh, would have happened thousands of years ago had the gatekeepers not stopped them. So, beginning for the first time to see the magnitude of the stakes, the party tries to find a way to identify their enemies. With their last question, they ask, how do the mind seeds identify each other? We are all, and have always been, Vakri. Vesikot doesn't know this name, but he recognizes it as a female quarry name with no appellation that would signify a human host. And only then does the party realize that all of the mine seeds that they have been searching for have been seeded by a single quarry. And we'll find out what happens next 
next week. So this week, new series! For nearly 300 episodes now, we've been breezing through RPG mechanics and assessing their tactical value. And sometimes uh, our dear listeners ask us, WTF are we talking about? (laughs) (laughs) Could you go into a little more depth, maybe? And for 300 episodes, we have said no. Yeah, and this is, you know, this is us creating a new series to discuss the tactics that we use most often at our table uh, in just about any game, though, you know, D&D is tactical enough that most of them apply to D&D as a way to understand sort of what we think about when we assume like the power level of an ability or we assume there are certain ways that parties are going to play um you know when we're looking at those kind of tactical elements of games when we're trying to solve the tactics of a game what are the kind of levers that we're pulling at what are the things that we're measuring how are we thinking about uh the value of those abilities right like we talk a lot about the optimal way to build a character um, but there are also often optimal ways to play a character that, to make particular decisions during your turn um, and as a party. Um, now, if you're a lifelong power gamer, this might not be anything new. It certainly won't be anything groundbreaking, but it certainly is worth uh, covering a lot of the basic tactics that we assume uh, a party is using when we evaluate how strong a particular option is. Uh, And then the series is not just for players. So we'll talk about how GMs can plan for these tactics and their combat encounters, um, how they can or sometimes should or should not use them against the players. Um, So so GMs can improve their game too, right? So you know how to play your monsters better. Mm -hmm. And for you storytellers out there, we're also going to talk about how to incorporate um, these tactics into the story and the lore in ways that make sense, whether that is players using it or the monsters. All right, so let's jump into it, Ishan. Focus fire. What is it? Uh, it's geeking the mage. <laughs> the simplest version of this is when everyone on one side focuses all of their attacks and abilities on a single target to kill it as quickly as possible. Yeah, and then I think the more complicated version of that is when everyone targets their attacks and abilities on common targets to ensure they're eliminated efficiently. (laughs) So it's not necessarily that you need to kill something, it's that you need to take it out of the fight. Um, It's not necessarily that everybody focuses the same target, it's that you efficiently focus targets so that, um, you know, two people kill this thing, uh, three people kill that thing, and at the end of the turn, you've done, you've eliminated the most combatants possible. Yeah, this is why, for example, we often talk about abilities like um, in 5e D&D, the spell Hypnotic Pattern as being extremely powerful, maybe even overpowered, because it allows you to selectively focus fire, right? If you can take all of the enemies in a given area and incapacitate all of them, then you can completely ignore the rest of them and everyone can walk up, focus fire, and take out each individual person one at a time. Uh, or the opposite, which is CC them and then focus somebody who isn't CC'd so that that nobody gets to do anything on the enemy side, right? Right. Uh, given the topic of this particular series in this episode, do you want to explain CC? Uh, yeah, sure. So CC is a uh, crowd control. So that's just basically any ability which um, uh, impacts uh, a, an enemy's uh, ability to choose, right? So if it 
restricts their movement, if it restricts their action economy, um, if they are stunned, if they are incapacitated, um, if they are knocked on their back or pushed around, right? Those are all effects that eliminate their or reduce their agency. Um, and if you apply them in the right way, it reduces their agency in a way that forces them to, you know, attack somebody they don't want to or lose a turn or otherwise not be able to apply best tactics. All right. So why is it that focus firing works so well? Why is it a common useful tactic? Okay, Ishan, I want you to take a little journey with me because it's not every day that we get to go digging through the library and pull out the official guide to Command and Conquer from Brady Games. Ooh, um, I feel like this should be an entire episode, but okay, I'm I'm on board. Let's do this. Okay, so Command and Conquer, old uh, OG, frankly, uh, real-time strategy. We're talking about the original game, which I got as a, I don't know, elementary schooler, middle schooler, right? It could barely run on my parents' computer. It came with this book. It was the guide to how you beat every mission in the campaign of of Command and Conquer, right? But at the beginning, it had an introduction to basic tactics. Uh, and so this example has stuck with me for a very long time, okay? Uh, imagine you have a scenario where you have five characters per side. They all have five hit points, and they deal one damage per round. So you have a smart team and a dumb team. The smart team is focusing fire on one target every round. The dumb team is spreading their aim out. Just, you know, everyone shoots someone different. So if you do this, right, play one round. The smart team has five wounded teammates. The dumb team has lost a team member. If you repeat that the second round, then five more damage have gone into a single target on the dumb team. And four damage has come back to the smart team and they're all still standing. Right. If you keep repeating this, eventually the dumb team is dead and the smart team has only lost one casualty. So focus fire. <laughs> right. The the mission here is like when you're picking units, right? Send all your units to attack the same thing and then attack the next thing. Right. It works in RTS, it works in RPGs, it is just the sound thing. And the reason for that is, of course, like dead things don't fight back. Right. <laughs> Right. So you don't get to act if you're dead. So make things dead. Don't make things injured. Right. Ultimately, in the end, like in the final analysis, this is an action economy issue. What you're trying to do is eliminate the other turn, the other team's turns. And in most combat games, the way to do that is to kill the enemy. So the the thing you want to race toward as quickly as possible is killing an enemy and the fastest way to do that is for everyone to jump on the same target usually right yeah so this is obviously a stylized example mm -hmm. <laughs> um so Wait, one we've thing made a whole bunch of very important assumptions in this scenario exactly uh the the most obvious one is that characters at one hit point are just as effective as they are at five hit points um which sounds how... dumb but is extraordinarily common in rpgs yeah, that's how D and D works. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Like it, 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 I think it takes a, a while for often new players or maybe players who are sort of first dipping their toes into tactics to realize, oh right, like I I get it now. the The only thing that you can do to stop the enemy from acting is incapacitate them in some way, right? Some sort of status effect or death, and you know usually death is the easiest one uh, if you don't have magic, right. And that's just because in D&D, &D, you still get to do everything on your sheet, 
uh, even if you're at one hit point. Now, there are some monsters that have some goofy, like, edge cases, but, like... Well, I mean, sometimes they get more dangerous. The, that's, yeah, well... You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like think Leg- Legend of Zelda, right? Like, what you don't want is four enemies, you know, one hit away from death. Because then they yeah. all move really quickly and they turn red. Right. The uh, In fourth edition, this is the bloodied mechanic, right? Right, it's exactly. Like, Sometimes they got stronger. Right. You don't want to bloody everything. You want to bloody one thing and see how bad it is. Right. <laughs> also, notably, this is not how things like Savage Worlds work, mm-hmm. right? This isn't how, uh, how Blades in the Dark works. They have a death spiral. So once you start accumulating damage, your options are decreased. Your performance is decreased. Um, you start spiraling until you're eventually severely impeded and your ability to act is naturally so low that you can kind of be ignored right and you in this case could be an enemy as well and now it's interesting to note here that you know in games like savage worlds um, and blades in the dark where you do have this a really difficult death spiral to contend with that doesn't mean you don't focus fire because remember at the beginning we sort of define focus fire not as necessarily everyone attacks the same target but everyone attacks in a coordinated way to eliminate the most dangerous targets first right so once you bring the death spiral into effect if a character is incapacitated incapacitated enough where they're not really a threat then you can ignore them you then shift to the targets who are the most the next most capable exactly so sometimes in some games, it actually is better to like, you know, put a slug in this person's chest and then a, and then an RPG in the in the back corner. Right. Because if if that takes them out, even if it doesn't kill them in the mechanics of this game, you've effectively done the same thing. Right. Exactly. You have you have done the maximum damage to their next turn. Right. Exactly. You right. have reduced their action economy by the maximum amount. Um, another assumption of the smart team dumb team example is that they don't have any competing priorities right their only option is to attack they don't have any crowd control they don't have any dodging they don't have any defense they don't have any chance of failure right they don't have any way of gaining action economy advantage or or suffering disadvantage they can only attack they Um, don't miss right (laughs) you know every every time you add one of those elements into your like decision tree right like it becomes more complicated in how to focus fire and where to focus fire. Keep all these things in mind. Like think of the scenarios you've all all probably seen where, you know, even if you hadn't coordinated this, you probably have had a a period where, you know, two people at least were like, okay, let's both attack this person, right? Uh, And then the first person takes them out. And now suddenly you're like, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. Let's let's reevaluate all of this and like what the threat level is here and like who we're attacking and how. Well, speaking of, <laughs> the other assumption here is that both teams were equally dangerous, right? Like every enemy was identical. There was no priority target. Right. No no mage to geek. Right. As long as they choose the same target, they get the right effect. Um, and then the last assumption is one that often I think gets overlooked by groups is that the damage was efficient, right? It was you know, one hit, one damage at a time and one hit point at a time. So there was no risk of wasting damage on a dead target. Um, and we can talk about this a little bit later, but like basically the idea here is like, you know, if you drop a fireball on somebody's head, who's at one hit point, uh, it doesn't matter how many D six you roll for damage. Like they're dead either way. Right. So you probably could have done something differently. You don't have to enter that calculus in when everyone's doing the same thing. Yeah. You'll often hear us talk about this, 
kind of thing when we're sort of theory crafting or dealing with very large numbers. You know, at the point where in certain games you get where one attack will take out another enemy from, you know, full full to dead, there's no point in doing more damage. There's no there's no point in like figuring out ways like the, the opportunity cost of doing even more damage on top of that is wasted. Uh and you know, you'll you'll see us talk about this with like, you know, 5e Paladin builds where it's like, I, I don't know, an extra 48 damage is probably often going to be wasted. You know, right. like do something else, defend an ally or something like that. Or there's like, uh, that, that happens a lot with healing in 5th edition too. Uh, I know it's a little bit the inverse, but it's like chip healing is not very helpful, right? The odds of three extra hit points making a difference, not great, right? right. Especially if you're, you know at 37 hit points or 40 hit points like what's the difference right and then you know also the best action economy for healing is uh mass healing but of course if not everyone is damaged then you're completely wasting it right or if someone's only mildly damaged because you can't gain more hp than you your, your maximum right but now we're digressing on efficiency it's true <laughs> all right so how do you apply focus firing well, it's pretty simple. You choose a target, you focus on that target, and then you choose the next target, and you focus on that target. It's like eating cupcakes. <laughs> yeah, or donuts. <laughs> yeah, like you, you pick a donut, you eat that donut until it's gone, and then you pick another donut. Or it's like eating cupcakes in which you pick the cupcake, you lick all the frosting off until it sucks, and then you go to the next cupcake. <laughs> You put it if back. You're, <laughs> if you're a monster. <laughs> you pick up a slice of pizza, you fold it in half, you take a bite out of the middle, you put it back, and people wonder how do they do that. Um, now, of course, this means that you need to make a decision on which is the best target. Uh, best is super subjective in a lot of scenarios. Best is often the difference between good tactics and great tactics, right? Applying focused fire to the right target is is the art <laughs> right the focus the act of focusing fire is the science right i mean the saying isn't uh geek anyone geek someone you know geek the first person through the door it's geek the mage because they're usually the most dangerous and also uh the most the squishiest frail. yeah right <laughs> you know imagine your typical scenario of bursting through the door and the the cult is in the the middle of their horrible ritual there's usually like the the cult leader who's the big boss and you know this is the bbeg and that's the person we have to kill and like after we do that all this is over focusing fire on the bbeg is actually not always or maybe even often the optimal tactic mainly because they probably have the most defenses yeah if you spend you know four turns trying to whittle them down while you're getting wailed on by the cultist with their you know ritual knives um you're going to be wondering, well, maybe taking those extra five attacks per round is not the ideal way to handle this situation. I wouldn't have so many holes in me and look like a pincushion. Yeah, but, you know, if we all focus on one cultist, which in the fiction or even like at first glance looking at the table and the size of the minis might look like a bad idea because this person isn't actually a threat. Well, maybe it takes three of us to take each of these out, so... Let's pile on, and before they can even act, the team evil is already down to four. Anytime that a target looks like you can focus them down before they get to act, whether that's act first or act next, um, that's generally a target worth considering, right? It's not always the case, but like that's generally a good place to start looking for who should you focus on. 
And then again, keep in mind you don't need to kill targets, right? Disabling them, degrading their performance so they're no longer a threat, um, you know, in, in those death spiral systems, throwing them into the death spiral. Like, often that's good enough to require a switch of target. Um, and And recognizing, right, when you have crossed that line for a given target, right, when you pepper them with six bullet wounds, but the seventh will kill them, I'm not too worried about somebody who's got six holes in them, you know? <laughs> um, that's maybe a good time to think about switching. Right. And this is why we often talk about battlefield removal abilities, uh, which just, you know, sends someone away, even for a temporary amount of time. It means that, you know, in the, you know, 10 seconds that we're actually going to spend in the fiction in this fight, uh, we'll take care of everyone else. And then when they come back, maybe we'll parlay. Right. <laughs> um, you can also do this not just by like punching or shooting or stabbing, right? Like focus firing can also mean, all right, these people will go punch and stab. And I, if I can tell that we're up against a pyromancer, if I can cast, you know, resist elements or protection from fire or something like that on our melee combatant, I have done an excellent job in eliminating much of the threat of the pyromancer. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, this is... You know, we talk about focusing fire as generally doing the firing, um, but sometimes it is about like making sure that you're around to attack longer, right? And and looking, you know, a, a round or two in advance, and and kind of estimating what's going to be happening to you, and mitigating some of that, so you know you're there at the end of the fight, right? Because if you keep in mind, like eyes on the prize of hurting their action economy, now the pyromancer is casting spells and doing less damage they're getting less bang for each action that they're able to take which you know in in the math ends up being very similar to not being able to take those actions yeah or you know <laughs> degrading them by half right like if you're applying resistance that are only damage type like they're now half as effective like that's the death spiral like they've entered the death spiral without taking a bit of damage uh, or, you know, you force them into making suboptimal choices for their particular build or stat block where, you know, maybe they're smart enough to realize fire damage isn't going to do it anymore. Well, I have some crappy spells that don't do fire or, you know, I have a dagger. Let me whip it out and see what happens. Um, of course, like all tactics, it's useful when it's useful and it's not useful when it's not. So let's talk about when are some times you want to abandon focus fire tactics. When the barbarian rages. <laughs> should we maybe shoot the attack nope nope um this person's closer to me and i don't like their face <laughs> so i'm gonna rip it off uh yeah well i i guess peel is, is one case <laughs> yes <laughs> if you have an angry barbarian in your face it's probably a good idea to shoot the angry barbarian and not whatever you thought you were gonna do lest you not live to see the next round. Of course, this could also just be an opportunity uh, for the barbarian to make the selection on who we are all going to focus fire on. <laughs> right, well, when it's a friendly barbarian, yes. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, you stab that guy. All right, I mean, every, everyone stab that guy. Yeah, that sounds good. Uh, I, I mean, I think that does touch on something, right? When, when the coordination doesn't make sense, though, right? Like, when everybody is talking about, like, precise tactics and the barbarian is in a, in a, is in a blood rage... Um, you know, when you're activating your segment in uh in Lancer, like 
that coordination doesn't make any sense anymore, right? So that's fine. Like, let the barbarian just go hit the biggest thing he can find, or the angriest, or the nearest thing, or the thing that's most covered in blood, right? Like, whatever decision tree that a character makes, fine. Um, you know, and, and then likewise, like, maybe the PCs don't have a way of communicating to each other, right? Um, so coordination is difficult because of that, or they can't see each other well, or they can't all see the same targets, so there's something that's going on that makes it more difficult to focus, and maybe they don't get the sense that they need to yet. I think this is an important point when we're talking about optimal tactics, because I think often groups, like groups at a table, will get into a groove where, you know, there are a few people who are tactically minded, and they've basically come up with, um, you know, attack patterns, you know, Um or are directing other people, or someone's playing the warlord, or whatever, right? And so we know that in a given scenario, these these are the best tactics for this particular group. But then you get into a situation, like you said, where maybe you can't see things, or you don't have information, or you can't communicate, or you're separated, or the party is split, or it's dark, or whatever. And now suddenly everyone is in a scenario where you need to do the the single thing that is best for your own character. And these are situations where a less experienced group would probably have fewer issues because that's kind of what they're always doing is I'm thinking for myself and trying to, you know, do the best thing that my character would do or try to use my abilities to, you know, the best that I can. But if you have been relying on group tactics and, you know, things like focus firing, and now that's yanked away from you suddenly because of, you know, something that the GM planned for, then you might find yourself flailing a bit uh, with without sort of that feedback. Uh, like we talked about before, another reason why you don't want to focus fire or maybe don't want to focus fire anymore is when you're worried about overshooting a damage target or applying overkill to a particular target. Wargamers know all about this, right? The enemy has five hit points, and if you hit them with the fireball, they are absolutely dead. But you just wasted all of that damage, and you wasted the ability to use that area of attack effect uh, another time when it would be more effective. Right. And this this applies to, you know, special weapons, special ammunition, um, you know, activated abilities on your weapons, whatever they are, right? Like, you don't want to go all in on a target who's going to die no matter what. Um, and likewise, like, if somebody, is, you know, if you if you have an enemy who is down to a minimal number of hit points, Maybe it makes sense for you, like the the big bursty paladin, to go fight the next priority target, knowing that, you know, that wounded enemy could be cleaned up by somebody else. Right. Knowing that none of your 68 smite damage is going to be wasted on this target, which is going to be dead. And then, you know, the, the piddly bard has to stab the next big enemy with a rapier. The the wild part about that is I'm not sure if you said 68 or 6d8, and either one could be either accurate one. for a paladin. <laughs> yeah, either one. Um, uh, let me let me just throw this in here. Um, a corollary to this is a good GM tactic is hold things behind the screen if it makes for a better story. So if someone does crit or the pal the paladin does say like you know what i'm going to go all out i think this is a really tough enemy let's drop the biggest smite that i've got and then the enemy had four hit points left like play it up is like really big and cool and they'll be like well huh, that was a waste sucks to be you yeah <laughs> 
it would it would have died whatever no like if if they scoop up all their dice never like don't say it doesn't matter they're dead anyway let them right. roll let them roll the dice right another time to consider abandoning focus fire is when you do have strong crowd control um you know, if you can reduce the effectiveness or deny actions to lots of targets, it's often worth spreading those out rather than focusing on a single target. Um, yeah, mages in general, controller characters in general, um, it either might not make sense to focus fire along with the rest of the group, or, you know, you might set the stage for everyone else to then make decisions about who to focus fire on. Basically, who succeeded on these saves, who isn't trapped um, you know, inside uh, the nets or the smoke bombs. Um, and then last, I think it's important to abandon this when you're the GM. Yeah. And I recognize this is a slippery slope because you don't want to, you know, have combat encounters that are brain dead enemies at all times. Um, but I mean, targeting a single PC is the tactically wise choice almost always, but that doesn't make it fun for the player um in two ways one if you're you know the tank who wants to be a big pool of hit points and you know collect all the damage that means you're constantly interacting with that player and not with the other players at the table so they're not doing anything like they're just watching at that point as you are you know feeding damage into the tank who expects it um so in that case it's good to spread the damage around just to keep people active um and then the other sense is when you you know, focus down like the mage, right? When you as the GM geek the mage, uh, a lot of times the PC falls pretty quickly when you focus all of the enemy abilities on them. And now like they're dead, they're out of the fight, they've lost a character. And what do you have to show for it, right? Like all you proved was that you could bring a lot of enemies to a fight and then send them all at the same target. What were they supposed to do here? Right. Remember that the point of focus firing is to reduce enemy actions. But remember that when the enemy is the players, actions are playing the game. You know, if the players don't get actions, they're not doing anything. They are bored. Right. Um, and, you know, damage, being attacked, uh, having to make saving throws, um, having to dodge, having to activate your defenses, that's spotlight. Those are the interesting, fun things. Like that's that's using your abilities, and even if you have players complaining about, like, oh, I'm getting attacked again, um, the same player may not realize it, but they would be probably more upset if they were never getting attacked. So let's talk about as GMs, how do we design encounters around focus fire tactics? Well, you can incorporate multiple threats with different profiles in the enemy lineup. So you can have glass cannons who would be very easy to take down, and if they're not taken out very quickly, deal a ton of damage. You can have swarms who usually are very resistant to damage or hard to target or something like that, and so very difficult to focus fire. Yeah, and then you might have like elites, right, who are sort of that balance of hardy and also dealing heavy damage, the, the kind of thing you can't ignore forever, but might not be your first priority, right? And then they have to ask the question of, at what point do we have to start focusing on this before it gets out of hand? Yeah, and you can see it, with these multiple profiles, you are the goal here is not only to proof your encounter against focus fire tactics, it's also to reward them. You want to reward good tactics and make that interesting and fun. So if you have multiple glass cannon enemies, 
the focus fire tactic is most effective against these. The best thing to do is to take out a glass cannon before it can fire its cannon. Right. <laughs> um, l give them that, you know? Um, but, you know, have several of them so that you actually do get to fire off one of those cannons. And then they get the reward of seeing what they prevented when they killed the first one. Right. And I think that's important. Like, uh, you know, having glass cannons that only explode right and and never actually get to fire in a lot of ways like that becomes a diminishing return in 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 the sense of like the feel good of of winning right because like until you really know what that threat level is right like when you get hit by something that smacks you for 50 damage in a go right and you think oh my god uh two levels ago that would have killed me like, and now I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm here on 10 hit points and, uh, and, and struggling, right? Like that validates all the times that you focus down those glass cannons in the past. Right. And it reminds you in the future, like, oh yeah, we got to deal with that thing. Right. So that experience sticks with you. It's important that like they have a chance to reiterate why they should be prioritized. Yeah. And then on the flip side of that, those sort of middle ground elites, uh, really can stymie this tactic because, you know, they're not dangerous enough that we definitely need to kill them fast, but also they're not squishy enough that we definitely know that we can take them out quickly. So, you know, you'll you'll often have a scenario where players will disagree about who to focus fire on. And that actually is a, is a great thing for table dynamics because now people are having a conversation. Right. Yeah, this this happens a lot, I think, when you have a couple of these kind of hard-hitting, hardier enemies, and they are putting multiple PCs a, a, at risk, right? When when multiple people are one or two hits away, now you're also having... It's not just about the enemy that you're trying to decide what to do. You're thinking about who on our team are we willing to sacrifice, right? Who Who can we most mitigate getting knocked out? Right? Who can we survive the rest of this encounter without their services? Right? Or who can we most easily get to to revive? Right? And then in addition to mixing up the enemies that you place on the board, you can also include crowd control or um, you know, interesting terrain features. You can uh, position the enemies or have them act in a way that makes it uh, expensive in terms of uh, action or ability to focus. So it might be obvious uh, who the mage is and where they are, but you know if they're located 100 feet away and you're dealing with a mostly uh, melee party, focusing fire is pretty infeasible. Yeah. Something as simple as like there's a stream in the way can cause a lot of problems. <laughs> Yeah, you can't get your charge attack off if there's a stream in the way. <laughs> this can also, like, when we say crowd control, right, like, this doesn't have to be special abilities. This can be as simple as just engaging PCs in melee, right, to where they can no longer just reposition at will. Um, if you if you swamp them with a bunch of, you know, minions, they have to deal with those minions, or every time they move, they risk getting popped by, you know, a, a, an opportunity attack or whatever. Right. Remember, this isn't about making it impossible. It's about making it expensive. So, right. sure, you throw out lots of, um, you know, tiny brownies or whatever with, you know, big, sharp butcher knives, and it makes it difficult to run through the tall grass. If the player still wants to run through tall grass, that's fine. You're just going to take a few 
butcher knives to the thighs. <laughs> but As they have paid does. for it. They have now earned it. And okay, they can run across to the other side and try to geek that mage. And so when you're doing this, right, like the general rule, you want to engage range PCs with melee elites, right? So big, tough, difficult melee uh, opponents are a challenge for like the the bow wielder, right? Or the sniper to try and escape and kite away from. Um, it makes it very hard for them to choose the efficient target because they've got somebody screaming in their face and, you know, trying to hack their arms off with a chainsaw. On the flip side, engage your heavy hitters with chaff, uh, with minions, with uh, enemies that will die easily, but where there are a lot of them because it increases the odds of overkilling. Um, it, you know, it increases the chance that they're going to waste their damage and or will hold back because they don't want to use abilities that will waste damage. Um, and then use your own crowd control, like actual crowd c control abilities to minimize repositioning, right? So if you cannot move effectively on the battlefield to, you know, get to that hidden target or get behind the terrain um, or, or get the flanking angle on the priority target, you're likely to be forced to choose a, you know, a suboptimal target. Um, either you focus a different one or, you know, one or two characters end up not able to attack the main target and they have to make a different decision, right? You're, you're not punishing them. You are providing them like tactical variability, right? An additional set of choices that they need to make and, and better manage. Right. This is a really important thing to keep in mind when you're creating these kinds of encounters. Uh, it's about challenging the players. It's about giving them interesting additional options and combat tactics to think about. What you don't want to do is, um, you know, take the melee elite and have them pop up stealthily behind the archer while at the same time, um, you know, all those brownies sprout up a, a, around your melee combatants. Like you, you don't want to hard counter your player's abilities. It is usually better to, you know, present those enemies with those abilities on the field and give your players the option to decide how they're going to engage. So, you know, the, the range combatant says, oh, okay, I'd better stay away from the melee elite. Um, that might be difficult, but it shouldn't be impossible. It, it, you shouldn't be making the decisions for them right? Uh, all the time. You know, sometimes a melee elite stealths up behind you and, you know, that's <laughs> those are the breaks. And that's it too, right? Is that, that player characters are repeat customers, right? So this is, it's not about a single fight using every tactic. It's about over time introducing multiple tactics, right? It's about like, well, in this fight, you got countered and didn't get to do the thing that you usually do. And so that was interesting for you. But next fight, you can go back to doing your bread and butter, right? Like if that's what you enjoy, like that's fine. I'll plan around that instead. And then another easy thing you can do is if it makes sense tactically for the enemies to focus fire, then have them do it, but have them stop doing it earlier than player characters would. Right. So don't shoot to completion, right? Don't drop somebody to zero. Um, put the fear of God in them and then let the, you know, the other, uh, other enemies do the same thing to another PC. Right, make your point and then make it again to someone who's still alive. Exactly, because just killing somebody first is, is probably going to result in a bad play experience. Putting two people on the brink of death, well, now you have our attention, <laughs> right? Like, now we have a real problem to solve here, and, and more importantly, we have a fair opportunity to do it. 
Okay, so let's talk a little bit for for storytellers. How do we incorporate focus fire tactics into fiction? Yeah, because I think one issue that comes up, uh, especially with new groups, is focus firing is often at odds with the way that movies or comic books portray these kinds of scenes. Heroes are almost always pairing off in, in single combat, often against somebody who has, you know, their exact same abilities because this is my arch enemy, uh, or someone who has the opposite abilities and you're perfectly suited to dealing with or perhaps uh, completely not suited to dealing with. Yes. <laughs> There's nothing but mirror matches and hard counters. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, when, like, Batman and Robin show up and are fighting the Joker and Harley... Batman and Robin, for some reason, even though they're supposed to be like brilliant tacticians, don't go, let's take out Harley first, right? Obviously. <laughs> the glass cannon. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, she has that giant mallet. Um. Okay. Let's drop to range, take her out with batarangs, and then make sure you don't get close enough to Joker for, for him to use his acid flower. What's the problem? In instead, it's, oh, the Batman says I'll take on Joker, and now the boy wonder is, is, has to tackle Harley Quinn alone. You know, it's unlikely that PCs are necessarily going to continue to opt for that strategy, right? It might happen once or twice, and then people kind of figure it out. So I think one way that you can encourage this, right, to make your fights flow a little less, like, tactically and a little more narratively like that is to just challenge the PCs directly, right? Like, a, a, a challenge of honor, a challenge to a duel, right? Like, if there are witnesses and that's important to the character they'll honor it right like the paladin is going to turn down uh a duel uh certainly not with like a vampire there can be some above the table prodding as well um i remember in some games that i've played with new players there's this sense that you don't want to steal someone else's kill that you don't want to like, step on someone else's toes at the table so you know this person has attacked enemy a i won't attack enemy a that's that's your enemy right and and it, if that is the etiquette at your table that's something that can you know easily be handled by saying like no i mean like you you all share the xp like it doesn't matter who gets the final kill it doesn't you know you're that's not the way that this game works and so like feel free to to jump in together like you're a team i think going going back to when focus fire tactics are implemented at the table effectively right you can use those moments to highlight the pc's efficiency uh as you're narrating right so they're an ace combat team that's operating at a high level as they're focusing targets and breezing through this difficult combat right like that's a triumphant moment that isn't like that cakewalk of a of a fight isn't that you underestimated the encounter it's that they are just that good right like these pcs are trained killers yeah alternatively you can highlight what was about to happen had they not been so tactically successful like oh wow they were, they were just about to use their impressive ability you you won't see that but uh you know maybe it'll come up later yeah the the, the retrospective like oh man if they had gone one more round right <laughs> that alarm would have gone off <laughs> what alarm yeah exactly <laughs> this is a time when it's great to be a fan of the party we talk a lot about you know you want to avoid being an antagonistic 
GM, but you don't you don't have to be on the party side, right? But you can cheer for them. You can be you can like take part in their triumphs and applaud them and be really happy when those things happen because it's a cool moment at the table. And that is going to reinforce uh like clever tactics. Yeah, and then I think another another technique to to lean on narratively is to allow for either recon or flashback planning, right? So if you are struggling in the narrative with how the party is so efficient and so focused, right, and and moving so tactically, like let that be, you know, a flashback. Like he, we knew that the big bad was going to be summoning waves of zombies, so you know. The players have discovered the way that they're going to deal with it. Now we flash back to see the player characters discussing how they're going to deal with it, right? And that way, the the PCs are simply executing the brilliant plan rather than, you know, being the puppets of the all-knowing players. So if you're having trouble wrapping your head around why these characters, uh, you know, with this particular backstory and in this particular scenario would use a brutally efficient tactic mm, consider that maybe they want to win maybe they don't want to die uh, maybe uh, a gm needs to present them with reasons why they do want to get this over with quickly there are a, a lot of reasons that you would want to focus fire and there are a lot of reasons in the fiction uh, where it would make sense uh, and I think, you know, if this is something that you're not doing at the table, you should try it out and see how you like it. Um, I think a common complaint at a lot of tables is that combat takes too long. Storytellers, do you want to make your combat shorter? Do you want to get back to the RP and sitting around the campfire and doing the dinner parties? Focus fire. Take out the mage. Perfect. Do you hear that, Ishan? Nope. I was shot four times before my first turn, and now I can't hear anything. Well, then it's time to move on to the Character Creation Forge. But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane, at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice, minus meat. And you can tweet at the show, at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Total Party Thrill. And join the conversation on Discord. There's a link in the show notes. All right. So this week in the Character Creation Forge, we are building fire in the hole. Shane, what is that? It's a guy who digs holes and drops fire in them. I kind of love it. What's the build? Uh, <laughs> the build is a gnome moon druid <laughs> 2 draconic sorcerer 18. A classic combination. <laughs> <laughs> As you do. <laughs> so we will take the Mark of Scribing Gnome from uh, uh, from the Eberron source an, book. An Eberronian Gnome Druid. Yeah. Dragon Sorcerer. <laughs> All right. Uh -huh. Yep. Yep. So this will add a, a handful of spells to your, uh, to your spell list since the Mark of Scribing is all about communication they're they're not super <laughs> relevant here um i don't know there's silence that's a fun one if you're sneaking through it, uh, into these holes um but otherwise there's a lot of like 
you know, message in those types of spells on that list. But more importantly, you will gain the plus one to charisma if you are playing by those rules. It is the best gnome uh, for this build. Uh, then from Moon Druid, we'll take two levels first. Uh, we'll get spellcasting, which will, uh, of course, give us level one druid spells, which are fine. Um, but we're just maintaining our full spell progression. We don't sacrifice any spell slots. Uh, and then at level two, we'll get Wild Shape. Um, with our Moon Druid feature, we will get up to CR1. Uh, you will not be permitted a flying or swimming speed, but there's no restriction on burrowing. So mm-hmm. I applaud this loophole. <laughs> yes, you'll have plenty of options at CR1. <laughs> and then, of course, you'll also gain Combat Wild Shape, which allows you to enter your Wild Shape as a bonus action. Uh, you can exit Wild Shape as a bonus action at any time. Uh, I've definitely been in scenarios where um, the combat wild shape comes in extremely handy, right? Like it's a bonus action, turn into a burrowing creature, and then you have your full burrowing speed. And it doesn't matter if it's 20 feet, who can follow you? Right. Or uh, or or the reverse. You say fire in the hole, you lob a, a fireball, and then you wild shape and burrow underground to hide from the results. <laughs> All right, then 18 levels of Dragon Sorcerer. Are you taking them in this order? Yeah, I am. I think because I think you need the combat wild shape to like to really fit the theme. So I would just take that first and then uh, just burn straight through the Draconic Sorcerer. Take levels. Produce Flame so that you've got the fire and the hole, and then you can deal with Dragon Sorcerer. Problem solved. Uh, so, Draconic Origin, you're going to choose red or gold for fire damage. Uh, you'll get Draconic Resilience and an extra HP per level, um, uh, bump to your unarmored AC. And then level three, you get Meta Magic. You'll end up with four of them total. Shane, what are the good options? So the the required option is Transmuted Spell from Tasha's uh, Cauldron of Everything. Um, so this is the one that allows you to convert damage from one element to another. Um, naturally, this is great for dodging resistances, right? Um the the forever bane of the fire mage is that fire is the most resistant damage type so what do you do well you transmute the spell you turn it into cold damage you move on with your day um but in this case as a draconic sorcerer um you can also turn things unexpectedly into fire damage so that more spells in your spell list are potential fire in the hole candidates Then you'll also want to consider, you'll get three of uh, Heightened Spell, which is Disadvantage to Saves, Empowered Spell, which lets you reroll Charisma dice, uh, Charisma uh, modifier number of dice in a damage roll. Um, And then Twin Spell and Quicken Spell are kind of the two staples of the the Sorcerer. I I think, um, you know, Quicken Spell is, is great when you're not planning on wild shaping, but it kind of competes for that bonus action, so it's not always great. Um... Twin spell, of course, is just double the efficiency. Wonderful if you can cast two concentration spells with it and then turn into a burrowing animal and go hide. Um, stuff like that. Then at six, you get elemental affinity. You'll add your charisma modifier to a fire damage roll, and you can spend a sorcery point for resistance to fire. So remember, if you use transmuted spell uh, to turn a spell into fire damage, you'll get the additional bonus damage. Now, I am too far removed from my rules mastery here ishan but at level 14 we get dragon wings Mm -hmm. which we can trigger as a bonus action Mm -hmm. i am unclear 
Uh, if you have dragon wings when you wild shape, <laughs> do your magical dragon wings come with you? I'm not sure. Are they listed as spectral dragon wings? They're or like, not spectral. That's what's weird about like this. They're like real one. wings that grow out of your back and they stay there forever. Is that it? They can. Yes. They don't. They don't like you. You know, you can remove them by choice, but they, yeah, they stay indefinitely. Oh, if you can turn them, right. If you can turn them on and off, then I don't know, should I actually look this thing up? Because I think my ruling is if you have wings out and you turn into a creature with no wings, you lose wings. But if you spend another bonus action after that, while you are that creature, you grow wings. But I, I think cause you, you don't keep all those actions in wild shape, do you? You do. Oh, well then great. Keep all your abilities, yeah. Oh, well, perfect. Um, I'm also <laughs> of the opinion that you can use combat wild shape or you can use old-fashioned wild shape. So for a uh, for an action and a bonus action, you could be a flying whatever you want to be. Badger. I mean, it's always going to be a badger. I mean... Giant badger. Correct. Because I want to be CR1 quarter, not zero. Uh, and then at level 18, you'll get Draconic Presence, which uh, as an action and for five of your spell points, you can create a 60-foot aura around you that forces a wisdom save uh, for everyone in the aura versus either being charmed or frightened, your choice, for one minute. Um, this is a different kind of bomb, but I would argue no less effective of a bomb, and thus it fits fire in the hole. What if I call this badger magnificence and i only do it in giant badger form <laughs> and then people are charmed or frightened but also very confused as to why this badger is so terrifying or alluring i mean it's obvious why he's so terrifying and alluring perhaps not perhaps not alluring <laughs> it's obvious why he's so terrifying he's look a at, badger <laughs> look at my fine stripes these sharp claws so before we wrap up, we want to take uh, another moment and thank our Patreon supporters. Yes, uh, your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. And supporters of any level get access to our plot hook of the week bonus content, which is available right now on Patreon.com. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out all of our rewards at Patreon.com slash TotalPartyThrill. And what do we have planned for next week's episode? We're talking about... Did you get that? I, I tried to send it to you telepathically. We're talking about telepathy. Ah, yes. Well, I got it, but I don't know how that works across podcasts, so it's good that you clarified. The the word telepathy that popped into your brains, like, you know, four days ago, that was that was me sending this. Makes sense. Sorry. Yeah. It's, it's weird how, like, when I read a word on a page, it pops into my brain. Do you think, like, the page has telepathy, too, or? It's the author working through the page. It is the wonder of literature interesting mm -hmm. okay uh and then in the character creation forge we're building the dragon rider of pern well that's it for episode 291 of total party thrill i hope we lived up to our name but either way i'm shane and i'm ishan thanks for listening mm -hmm.